Hey listener, thanks for joining us for TRP's weekly podcast. The Restoration Project is a cooperative Baptist fellowship church located in Salisbury, Maryland. We are currently teaching through the book of Exodus. It's an important ancient story about God rescuing the Hebrew people from forced labor in Egypt. This story informs much of what Israel believed about God, and it recurs throughout the Old Testament. The themes sounded in the story ultimately reach their climax in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who leads people out of a different form of slavery and oppression into life and hope. If you would like more information on the Restoration Project, you can check us out on Facebook or head over to our website at restoresby.org. Enjoy the episode. So over the past few weeks, you know that we have been studying the book of Exodus, and we have reached at least the first climax of this book. The first 15 chapters have been um, pointing us to the Red Sea crossing, Israel leaving a place of slavery and servitude and entering into a period of what will be wilderness wanderings. But for them, it's leaving uh, a servanthood under the oppression of the king of Egypt, and now moving out to serve their God, to be able to worship their God. And over the last couple of weeks, we have been leading up to this, and last week we actually saw the Israelites cross over the Red Sea. Tonight's text will seem like a repeat of that, but I can assure you that it is not. This is Exodus chapter 15. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. 
the Lord reigns forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. She sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The word of God for the people of God. So it might be an overstatement when I assured you that this was totally different because this is a retelling of that climactic moment in Exodus where Israel has moved from a place of slavery and servitude into freedom and life and hope through the Red Sea and the parting of the Red Sea. Now, throughout the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, we have these uh, instances where in the text we have a narrative retelling that is followed by a poem or a song. This happens when Hannah is praying in the temple for a son, one that she has not yet uh, been able to have. And we see how this um, works out where she talks to the priest and Hannah is eventually able to have children and Samuel is her son and she brings him back to worship in the house of the Lord. And in uh, 1 Samuel, we have this, this retelling, this narrative retelling of this event. And in the, the very next chapter, Hannah sings a song about this. We see the same structure in the book of Judges. And this is one of my favorite stories in the book of Judges. Judges is an absolute train wreck of a book. It's not one that I recommend that you read to your children at bed before night. It's got tales of left-handed warriors who sneak swords into palaces where they kill fat kings with their sword and the dagger goes into the fat and it is encompassed in their bellies and then their bowels are emptied behind locked doors. Sarah's like, nope, let's move on, moving on here. But one of my favorite stories in the book of Judges has to be the story where Deborah is the judge. Now, throughout the book of Judges, we have this what's called a cycle of sin. The land is is peaceable and nice, and then Israel begins to sin. They do what is evil in their own eyes, and God gives them over to uh, an, an oppressor. And they begin to cry out. The people of Israel cry out saying, Lord, help us, help us, help us. And God gives them a judge. And the judge goes and delivers the people of Israel from this this problem. And then the land has peace. And when we have the land having peace and Israel begins to cycle, they do what's evil in their own eyes. They, They do whatever that they want to do. And then God gives them over to an oppressor and then God raises up a judge and that's so on and so forth. And we have in this moment, Deborah is, is the judge in this passage. And she goes and talks to Barak, who is the, uh, the lead army captain of the time. And she says, Barak, it's time for you to go and to lead people out of this time of bondage and oppression. They had been under the thumb of King Jabin, who also has a military commander named Sisera at the time. And Deborah says to Barak, go and, and, and deliver these people. And he says, I'm not going to do that unless you come with me, Deborah. I love that line in the Old Testament. It's not uh, one where we can see Barak as a person who has lots of fortitude, but I think that it's just a sneaky little introduction of something against the patriarchal system of the time, <laughs> which the ladies might appreciate. Uh, but here he says, I'm not going, Deborah, unless you go. And she says, fine, but know this, Barak, when we go, honor will be given to a woman because she will take care of 
Sisera. And we see them go into battle and things are going well and Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, he flees because everybody on his side is dying and he flees into the tent of a woman named Yael. I lobbied so hard for our little girl if we were to have one to be named Yael and Kate said, no, I don't think so. (laughs) Yael James, not gonna happen Um, for many reasons now, but... We'll leave those off to the side for a moment. So Sisera shows up, and he's the military commander of the, the foreign enemy that is, is hurting and oppressing the Israelite people. He shows up in the tent of, of Yael, and the way that the Hebrew is worded, it's so beautiful. It's, Sora Adonai, Sora Eli. It's like Yael is soothing and, and just drawing him in like, don't worry, military commander. Come on into my tent. In fact, when you come in here, I'll cover you up with a big thick blanket. And when you get all nice and tucked in, I'll bring you some milk to drink. This is so great because sister of the military, strong military commander, he goes in there and he gets all snuggled up with his blanket. He's like, can you bring me some water? And she brings him that warm milk and he just goes to sleep from exhaustion. And Yael goes outside of the tent. She takes a tent spike from somewhere, (laughs) takes it back into her home, puts it into the side of his head in his temple and rams it through him. Good night, sweet prince. Have (laughs) have Have a nice this is not reading to your kids storytelling here, but Yael, we see this, this powerful text where this woman completely destroys the military, mighty military man of the time. It's also interesting too, because Yael is kind of a fringe character here. She's not a Canaanite and she's not an Israelite. She's just kind of in the middle. And by this act, she is like putting her stake to become an Israelite, more or less. She's, she's putting her chips in with that people. And then Barak finally shows up and she says, come on into my tent. I'll show you what I have done with the man that you are seeking. It's just a beautiful story, but what happens is we have this narrative retelling and in the very next chapter, we have this song from, from Deborah that's singing about this same event. So we have a narrative telling and then we have a poem or a song about this same Event. Some people would even look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in this same light. I don't think that that's necessarily the best reading, but they see one as a poetic retelling and then one as a more narratival retelling of what's going on. But throughout the Hebrew Bible, we see these images where you have a story that's told as a narrative, and then we have a poem that's telling the same information, but in a very different way. And in this particular passage, we're looking at the Red Sea crossing. And here in Exodus chapter 15, we have the Shirat Hayam the song of the sea. And this is something that was so meaningful for the Jewish people throughout their history because it retells this climactic moment of deliverance where God has shown up with power on their behalf. It's such a meaningful passage, and we'll see this as we, as we continue on. But I want to bring you back to something that we talked about last week. And for those of you that weren't here, I'll try to bring you up to speed. Even when we're looking at Exodus chapter 14, that narrative, that story, uh, that retelling of the events where Israel had the sea in front of them and the Egyptian army behind them, and God splits the sea, and they walk through over to freedom and life and hope. Even in Exodus 14, where, where the storytelling is, is not poetic, 
trick so much as it is just a, a, a story. Commentators have said, one commentator in particular, his name is Terence Fretheim, he says that in this passage, it's an impressionistic picture of what is going on. And he calls our attention to the, uh, the work of the French painter Renoir, who is an impressionistic painter, who the point of his art is not... Uh, to give us a photo, or not to give us something that's uber-realistic, but it's to create an impression, it's to create a feeling and, a, and, a, and a, uh, an emotional connection with us, but it's also not to give us the fine details of what's going on. And this scholar was saying, this is how we should approach Exodus chapter 14 as well. And now I've had some, some conversations with people, and I want to clarify this. What I'm not trying to do here is to undo big fancy word coming up, the historicity of the Red Sea crossing. That is not my aim. I, along with many or most of you, can affirm that this is something that happened in history. Israel moves from slavery and servitude across the sea into life and freedom and hope. However, the point of the text in Exodus 14 is not to give us a play-by-play account of how and when and where and why. The point of this passage is to give us an impressionistic image of who God is. And if that is true of Exodus 14, then the poem that we have in Exodus 15, how much more so is that the case? This same scholar, he says, when the text, and here he's talking about how this text is used in Israel um, and later in, in Judaism, how it's used for their liturgical purposes. It's, it's retold, it's reenacted even. It's something that is so important for their history that they keep coming back to this story. When the text's liturgical use is combined with the poetic form, the result is that the images associated with the event are even more impressionistic than those in chapter 14. If you haven't heard much from me over the last few weeks, I hope that you hear this. The biblical authors, what they're trying to do is to allow us to see the God that they serve, is allowing us to understand who he is so that we can change in light of it. To understand who he is is the first priority that we have when we read this text. And in Exodus 14, 14 and Exodus 15, our text for tonight, we see some of these impressions of who God is. You can also tell that this is poetry, and this is one that that heaps on imagery, and it, it gives us beautiful pictures of who God is. It says, by the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Now, when you compare this with Exodus 14, remember, it was the strong east wind that showed up and split the text, but here the, the poet is saying, by the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the surging waters stood up like a wall, the deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. Further, you stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. We have this poet who is singing beautiful and deep theological lines. By the blast of your nostrils, God, you demonstrated more power than anybody else, and you split the sea so that we could walk right through it. No, that's a line from a song that we sing, thanks. Um, We also see that in this poem, what's being depicted is God as an ancient and mythic warrior. I love to sneak in that word mythic just to keep you guys on your toes. 
But what's happening here is for an ancient audience, as they heard this song and as they sung this song, what they would be hearing here is something that has deep resonances in their history. God as an ancient and mythic warrior because the language that's being used in this poem is taking us back to how people understood gods at this time. Now we've talked about this a few times. If you go back to Genesis chapter one, we see that God is in a sense taming ancient chaos. There's this, uh, the version of the Bible in the pew in front of you, I think has an interesting translation of this, but it's important for where we're going here. In Genesis 1, 1, it says, in the beginning, when God created the universe, the earth was formless and desolate. The raging ocean that covered everything was engulfed in total darkness, and the power of God was moving over the water. That term there, the raging ocean, For an ancient audience, this is what they were battling against. This is what their gods did battle with. It's the raging ocean, the great mythic to home, the deep, the things that were dangerous for their gods and for their people. And here in Genesis 1, it says the spirit or the breath of God is hovering over the waters. These things that in other ancient Near Eastern creation stories caused so much angst. Israel's God was just hovering over these waters as if to say, you've got nothing on me. The way that the creation story is told in Genesis 1, it has all these resonances to other creation stories. And what's being told here is that God is better than any other God that there is. For other uh, cultures, they had these great stories of battles amongst the gods. One of the most famous is called Enuma Elish, and we see Marduk in battle with Tiamat, which some people would say is related to the Hebrew term for the deep to home. And Marduk goes and kills Tiamat and splits her into two and takes one half of her body and creates the expanse, and he creates the, the ground and the earth with the other half of her body. But here, in Genesis 1, God is hovering over the deep, these surging waters of chaos. And God, as an ancient and mythic warrior, is seen here in this passage in Exodus 15 as well. This is the way that the prophets talked about this story, the story that we're looking at this evening. In in Isaiah 51, it says, Awake, awake, arm of the Lord, clothe yourself with strength. Awake as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Rahab, you can see here at the bottom, Uh, is known as a mythical monster, the name of which means surger, and plays upon the restlessness and crashing of the sea. In other words, what Isaiah is doing is he is taking us back into the same ancient motifs here and saying that God is the one who cut Rahab to pieces and pierced that monster through. And then it continues, was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the Tahom? the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over. This is what's happening in this passage here as as Israel is moving from slavery and servitude into freedom and life. The images that are being shown in Exodus 15 go back to the same sort of battle. God as a warrior who is taking care of chaos and allowing his people to go across these waters. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? 
Psalm 74, but God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your powers. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. What we're seeing here is very poetic, very impressionistic, very imagery-laden terms where God is doing battle with these forces of evil these forces of chaos. And Exodus 15 is trying to connect these dots where Egypt is that force of chaos that God has to make right and God has to tame. This gets even clearer uh, as the prophets continue. This is Ezekiel chapter 29. I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you great monster lying among your streams. And here that great monster term is actually you great sea monster, taking us back into all of these passages as well. Exodus 32, son of man, take up a lament concerning Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, you are like a lion among the nations. You are like a monster in the seas, thrashing about in your streams. Or Isaiah 30, chapter, uh, chapter 30, verse 7, to Egypt, whose hell is utterly useless. Therefore, I call her Rahab, the do-nothing. Rahab, the ancient sea monster who just sits around. Rahab, the one that does not have more power than me. You see, when we approach these passages, oftentimes we're looking for specific, detailed, historical data that can help us reconstruct what was going on. But what the ancient authors are giving us is something so much better. God is one who has more power than anyone else. This is why um, when we see this Red Sea event, it's, it's to be seen as a taming of chaos. Now, I understand that for some of you that are sitting here, this is all completely brand new to you, and you're looking at me like, I have no idea what this crazy guy is talking about. He keeps saying things about chaos and sea monsters. I've never heard about sea monsters in church before. What's going on here? Now, what I can at least say here is in this passage, when we're dealing with ancient Hebrew poetry, they're tapping into images that people at the time would have understood. We don't understand them because we're thousands of years removed from what's going on in this passage. But for an ancient audience, they would have heard and they would have seen this retelling of God taking his people across the Red Sea, and they would have seen it as God doing cosmic battle with the forces that were attempting to destroy his people. And God tames the chaos in the midst of that. For every other ancient story, these monsters were, were just that. They were monsters. They were things to be feared. But here in the text, God continues to do away with them, which leads us to things like this in the poem of Exodus 15. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Remember, the Exodus and this story is not about me and you necessarily. It's not about things that we can learn about who we are, but it's just to show us who God is. And in this passage, the one overarching truth that we keep seeing over and over is our God is better than any other God that is available. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory and wonder? It continues, and actually the song ends, the Lord reigns forever and ever. 
Understand that Egypt, uh, excuse me, that Israel had been enslaved for 430 years. That Pharaoh had had him under, had them under his thumb, various Pharaohs over this time. They were in the midst of slavery and oppression and God had been seemingly silent for these people, but now he brings them out with power and might. Keeps referring to your right hand, Lord, the breath of your nostrils. You have completely shown up here. The Lord reigns forever and ever. And this is the point of the song, and this is the point that they keep coming back to. Who is like you? No one. This is to be the framing narrative through which these people understand who they are. Pete Enns said, the Exodus is about God and who he is. And we see that here in this passage in Exodus 15 in this poem about the Red Sea crossing. Now I want to kind of phase into something here because we've talked about this as poetry and the images that we see here and the main image that I want us to at least hold on to is the fact that God is better than anyone else. And I'm going to I'm going to bring us into a, a world of midwifery and music for a moment. Um, but in this passage, we see that this is a victory song. And in the ancient Near East, it was the women who sang these victory songs. And here we're going to tap back into the ancient historical context where women would come out and as the men were coming back from battle, they would lead the people in these victory songs to, to reaffirm who God was and that God was powerful and that God can tame chaos and that God was over and through and in all of these things. And the women were the ones that led these songs. I talk about midwifery and music because we've seen in Exodus that these are like the two professions that women have, and both of them take a certain level of training and expertise, and both of these things allow women to function within society at a really high level. This wasn't just going out and singing a random song. This was going out and singing a song that had been rehearsed, that had been memorized, where the, the dancing and the, the music had been practiced. This was part of their worship. And we see the women functioning at this high level here. And at the end of the passage, we see something where, again, I think that we're sneaking into the world of the ancient patriarchal system here because we're introduced to Miriam, the prophet. Miriam, the one that has a job to do. It says, then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel or a hand drum in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. This was their ancient victory song because their God had been better than everyone else and had delivered the people from certain death and continued slavery and what have you. And the women were leading people out to sing these songs together. I think it's interesting too that where it talks about, and this is where I, I might separate myself from normal people, but like I think this is interesting. Um, the women here, it's not just that they went out and played a tambourine as the men showed up. Uh, it says the instrument mentioned in Exodus 15:20 is probably a hand drum. It's like it's sort of like that thing Billy plays sometimes when he's sitting up here on the box. Um, it's not necessarily a, a tambourine as it's translated in many English versions. It happens to be the only percussion instrument mentioned in the Hebrew Bible and in every case in which the gender of the musicians is stipulated, women are the drummers. Ladies, let me hear you. In time. Yeah, right. So we see what's happening here, and it says women in the biblical world apparently were expert percussionists. To the left of this slide, you can see this is called a terracotta uh, relief, where this is actually from Phoenicia, but it's seventh or so century. And you can see that thing that she's holding there. That's one of these pieces of percussion. 
And there's some things even outside of the Bible that demonstrate that this was something that women do. They played the drums and they allowed these um, victory songs to be played, which is kind of neat. Especially when you see that uh, from slavery to the Red Sea crossing in the book of Exodus, we keep meeting these women who allow Moses and God's people to do what it is that they're called to do. From Shifra and Pua in the very beginning, these midwives who show up and defy the empire and say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to allow these people to live. We're not going to kill kids because that's completely antithetical to what we do and who we are. We're going to defy the empire. We also meet um, Moses' mom and Moses' sister, Miriam, who we also see in this passage here, but they too come up with this plan to keep Moses alive, to kind of thumb their nose at the empire and say, no, we don't want to do this. We want to allow Moses to live. Moses' wife also allows him to live where, in that really weird passage where God wants to kill him and, and his wife uh, circumcises their kid and puts the foreskin on his feet and says, he's been a bridegroom of blood for me. You know that one. <laughs> she allows him to, to live, and she allows him to be used as God would have him. And now we see Miriam and these cult musicians. Don't hear that cult as a bad word, but hear these musicians as one who lead people into worship. From the very beginning of this book, now to the end of chapter 15, we have seen women playing this role throughout the text where they're allowing the men to do what it is that they're called to do and allowing these people to move from slavery and servitude into freedom and life and hope. And one commentator has this line that I thought was interesting. It says, when God breaks into structures of patriarchy. Now, I don't want to be up here and be the hipster liberal in the room that's talking about the impressions of Exodus 14 and 15 and keep talking about women and their role in the Old Testament. Although I've kind of said both of those things, I'm going to own that. But here I do want you to see that what this text is trying to get us to see is that God is doing things in a completely different way than other people are, are doing it. And it brings me to that text in uh, the book of Galatians where it says, in Christ, there is neither male nor female. In Christ, there is neither slave nor free. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Christ is breaking down those barriers. We go back to this text and we see what's happening with God demonstrating himself to be one with great power and great authority. It's through the breath of his nostrils that he's blasting these waters and people are moving from slavery into freedom and life and hope. No one can compare with his power and his might. This is the image that we see in this passage. I think as Christians, we have limited God's power I think as Christians sometimes, and perhaps maybe even when we go to the text, we're looking for the historical data and we're missing the poetic images of how good and how powerful and how strong our God is. And it's demonstrated in our prayers that might be weak and routine. Perhaps as well, when we see these stories and we see these unlikely characters of Shifra and Pua and Jacobed and Miriam, these people that have these roles in the story that we have also written ourselves out of these stories and we have limited what God can do, not just for others, but how God can use us in this great narrative that we're living in in the midst of our time and our place. Perhaps for some of you college students, you say, no, I couldn't talk to that person because I just don't know about that. 
perhaps for some of you that have coworkers or what have you, you don't want to you don't want to really kind of get out there. You see what happens in the workplace and this one person, nobody's really sticking up for them, and you don't really want to. Just want to let that be, so you can kind of be comfortable over here. There might be moments where we have the opportunity to put ourselves into a different place in the narrative. We don't trust our God to be that good. We don't trust our God to be that big. We don't trust our God to be one who has power over all things, including us and our lives and our opportunities. This evening, I really just want to remind us that the God that we serve, that has climactically shown himself in and through his son, Jesus Christ. That we can trust him and that we can expect him to be powerful, to be good, to be present, and to do great things for us. And we can also, as we see the unlikely characters that are included in this story, we can be encouraged not to write ourselves out of this story, but to trust God to use us greatly in the advancement of his kingdom and in our efforts to bring heaven to earth. Thanks again for joining us. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to visit us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story is, there's room for you here. And again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. Hope to see you soon.